Hey, good morning. This is Richard Shu, host of Shoe Untied. Uh, this morning, I'm really thrilled and honored to have with me as my guest, Charles H. Green, who's CEO of Trusted Advisor and co-author of the iconic book, The Trusted Advisor. Charlie, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. I like that iconic thing. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. It's a pleasure to speak with you again. Likewise. Thank you. So, Charlie, um, I have started a series, a podcast series, and I'm actually a little embarrassed to tell you this. I started a podcast series on remote leadership, and I should have thought of you at the very beginning. But what happened was I started interviewing about, uh, I've done about 10 of these interviews now, and my thesis is that uh, remote work is going to become more prevalent in our society uh, even after this pandemic is over. And as a result of that, um, remote leadership is going to be more important and that the skills required to become a remote leader are going to be different than in the past and that those skills will be further sought after in leaders. And in speaking with many leaders about this topic, uh, one of the themes that have emerged is how trust, which was super important even before in any leadership role, is now going to be even right. 10 times more important when you don't have, aren't able to face-to-face -face communication in remote leadership. And when I heard this theme from all these people and, and from totally disparate socials, lawyers and entrepreneurs and so forth, I just, I certainly said, oh my God, I've got to talk to the trust guy. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so that's and when I reached, and that's when I reached you, reached out to you and here you are. Oh, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, you know, it's interesting to hear you recite those findings. That's, uh, I've obviously been thinking about the same thing. Um, partly for 20 years, but especially in the last couple of months. And I endorse your findings. Maybe a little bit, not so much on the last one, that there's therefore going to be a rush to these kinds of leaders. Yeah, yeah. I tend to be a little skeptical about uh, uh, managerial inclinations to recognize things that seem you know, obvious on the face. <laughs> but the rest of it, yeah, absolutely more important, 10 times more important. I agree. Well, let's talk about that a little bit since, uh, you know, that's, you know, it's obviously a very important theme. I think one of the interesting things I observed is that people often don't use the word trust when they talk about things. They'll talk about them in sort of an obtuse way. They'll say, well, it's really important that they know your intentions or they'll say, well, then communication is more important than ever. Um, and what they're talking about is trust, but they don't often use that word. So maybe right. you can start by just kind of really Helping, helping us define that word, and then let's talk about it, how it's you know useful in the in-person communication, but also remotely. Right. Well, one thing I found over the years is that the word trust is very difficult to define it. And yet, at the same time, I found we all have a remarkably clear sense of what it actually means. Oh, it's just buried a level or two down. Uh, but I found, you know, interpolating different questions with different people, there's amazing unanimity about what it is and how it works. They're just not easy to talk about it. Mm. So here's a couple of key concepts that I think will help people think about it. Number one, trust is a relationship primarily between two people, interpersonal trust. That's mainly what I'm talking about. Not we trust Google, not we trust the government, but I trust you, you trust me. And so if you start with the notion of relationship, and unlike some other relationships like friendship or romantic involvements, uh, uh, I'm sorry, like those two, the two players have different roles. There's a trustor and a trustee. The trustor initiates a trust interaction by taking a risk. 
and the trustee then proves themselves either trustworthy or not. And if it is trustworthy and it clicks, then boom, the level of trust just went up in that relationship. Mm -hmm. So skills are associated, and you have to do both. You can't get away with one. You've got to be trustworthy when that's called for, and you have to be trusting when that's called for. Mm -hmm. So there are two very different sets of skills. Um, and I think it might be most interesting to dive down into the trustworthy thing for a second. You, yeah. you may remember, Richard, the, the, the so-called trust equation that uh, we wrote about in the book, The Trusted Advisor, yeah. 20 years ago. And very briefly, for those that haven't heard of it, it's uh, credibility plus reliability plus intimacy, all divided by self-orientation. Um, credibility is credentials, subject matter mastery, smarts, that kind of thing. Reliability is track record, dependable, um, reliable, that sort of thing. Uh, those are both kind of rational. You can think of behaviors. You can measure them. Intimacy, the third factor in the numerator, is, is very different. It's basically, do I feel safe and secure sharing information with this person? Are they going to treat me badly or do I, you know, I open up? All three of those are in the numerator. So if you score good on that, your trustworthiness goes up. The denominator, self-orientation, goes the other way. And there are two flavors of that. One is selfish. We have no trouble spotting selfish people. That's pretty easy. Mm -hmm. The more common one is not selfishness, but neurotic self-obsession, all the time worrying, uh, are they listening to me? Is she going to like me? How come everybody's looking at me? How come nobody's looking at me? Basically, a preoccupation with our own internal uh, thought processes to the exclusion of being able to connect to somebody outside. Mm. And um, now since uh, about 10 years ago, it dawned on me this conceptual model that we had developed, which is very nice, very simple, mm. uh, would work pretty well as a self-assessment tool. So we set one up, called it the TQ for trust quotient, like IQ, EQ, mm -hmm. and uh, over 100,000 people have taken it. We got a lot of data. And uh, relevant to this discussion, well, I'll give it three, three findings, and one of them is especially relevant. Finding number one, it goes up with age. We get more trustworthy with age. Everybody finds that completely unremarkable. This is an example of how we all actually do understand trust. Number two, women score more highly than men. And again, I found in, in roughly 300 audiences, literally 297. Only three exceptions out of 300. Hmm. When I ask the group, raise your hands, who do you think is more trustworthy, men or women? The group say, eh, women. So again, remarkable consistency about how people think about trust. And the third finding, the most one relevant here, is that if you run a regression analysis on the data that we have, turns out the most powerful factor of all of them is intimacy. It's not exactly what we expected when we wrote the equation, although we weren't trying to come up with a statistical model. But there's the finding. The most powerful component of trustworthiness is that notion of intimacy. Uh, the second place, one was self-orientation. So the two top scoring components are the emotional side of things. The, uh, you know, do I feel, are you really paying attention to me? Do I get a sense that you care about me? Are you focused on my objectives, not just yours? Can I share things in confidence with you? Are you a safe haven for tough issues? Mm. Those things are powerful. And to, I'll stop talking in a second, but just to bring it back to the way you phrased it, what's going on now with, with COVID-19 pandemic and everything? Well, the overwhelming response in everybody, including you and me and everybody listening here, is an emotional response. Oh, my gosh, you know, what's happening to my world? Where's my income? Am I going to get ill? What's happening with my relative? You know, it's a hugely emotional response. So even in normal times, the critical component of trustworthiness, which is key for leaders, I would say, mm -hmm. is emotional. Well, like you said, multiply by 10. 
in these times. And then add on top of that the need to go virtual. And how do you do this stuff remotely? Mm -hmm. uh, that is multiplied by 10. And let me stop there, and then we can explore the remote part of it or, or go anywhere else you want. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's very interesting. Well, I appreciate that. I was certainly familiar with that equation, but it was a good reminder. Um, yeah. Well, let's talk about the intimacy part because, sure. um, you know, as you said, that's the most important factor in the numerator. And obviously, it's very hard to achieve intimacy, or I would think much harder to achieve intimacy when you can't see the person physically. Talk to me about that. Does that I mean does that make the trust quotient just go way down, or how do you keep the trust quotient high? Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, well, <clears throat> kind of what you you noted in in times of crisis like this, the importance of it doesn't go down. Just the ability to do it and the frequency and the level of it um, makes it even harder. But the importance is even higher. So I, one thing I've noticed, I've I've moved to virtual as a lot of people have. Um, yeah been doing it lightly for the past four or five years, but much accelerated. And uh, here's an interesting data point. Uh, if I'm doing a webinar or virtual workshop with a group of people, three months ago, maybe 20% of them would come online with their camera. The rest preferred just to leave it to audio and, and kind of work there. Those numbers are now 60, 70%, people voluntarily coming online with, with video. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I credit Jimmy Fallon and company, you know, broadcasting from their basement, cats walking across the, you know, people are suddenly <laughs> much easier. And the value of that cannot be overstated because, as you alluded to, the, the visual components of being able to connect with someone are huge. They're mostly subconscious, but, you know, just think about it. If you can actually see somebody, uh, you pick up all kinds of, of subliminal clues. You can mm -hmm. use, you know, facial expressions. Uh, you know, in a, in a virtual web interaction, you can have people give a thumbs up, a thumbs down, um, up to some scale, you, you can talk to people. Uh, so right there, that's number one, get visual. And if you, if you, you know, don't worry about how professional your background looks, just get your face up there. Mm. Um, then again, that's still not enough. I'm kind of reminded, um, when I, uh, got some really good training a couple decades ago in public speaking, uh, one of the pieces of advice that really stuck with me is you have to exaggerate your, your gestures. You may think that you know a sweeping arm gesture uh, projects to the hundredth row back. No, it doesn't. You've got to wildly overdo it. And not just arm gestures. You've got to use voice modulation, you know, and you, you have to kind of exaggerate everything. Uh, that applies here, too. Um, that's important. Also, you may need to use more more words to get a, a thought across. Um, you know, on, on the level of chat, we, we developed emojis for a reason. You know, to, to communicate broader uh, aspects of, of the emotional connection. Um, all that said, I think nothing beats the the courage to just kind of go there. Um, Another component of public speaking that I was taught and makes a lot of sense, if you're in a room of a thousand people, talk to one person at a time. You know, Picture some person in the 80th row back there over on the left and talk to them for 10 or 15 seconds. Then shift your eyes to somebody else. And I found that also applies to doing virtual things. You know, imagine that you're speaking to one person in that group. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I've noticed myself, the, the feedback that I get from sessions that I do, uh, the best kind of feedback is, you know, words to the effect of felt like he was talking with me or interacted really good with a question from the audience. And I think, um, you know, to pull this back to leadership, uh, 
you know, the, the key components of a leader from a, from a trust perspective are going to be, even in normal times, very much the intimacy, the low self-orientation, mm-hmm. magnified by 10 when you can't be in front of them. Mm-hmm. And leaders have got to be um, very courageous at, at reaching out on emotional things, even, even something as simple as, uh, hey, Jose, I noticed you just raised your eyebrows at that. What's going on? What's behind that? Uh, willing to share their own situations, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So- well, one of the things, the other theme that sort of has come out from some of my discussions is that, and I'm sure this will not surprise you, is that, you know, it's obviously a lot easier to communicate or maintain the trust if that trust was already there before, let's say before the remote thing, whereas perhaps trying to establish it when you can only have the remote thing is much harder. Um, Yeah, I don't really buy that. Oh, go ahead. ahead. (laughs) It's, uh, I hear that a lot and it's, uh, it functions as an excuse. Hmm. Uh, Remember I work with lawyers, accountants, consultants, um, IT people, actuaries, etc., and and their gut reaction very often is, well, you can do that if you've already got a level of trust, you know, mm-hmm. but it might be too risky otherwise. And the counter to that is, how do you think it got that level of trust? It didn't get there because somebody suddenly said, I like his face, I trust him. No, one of you did something, mm-hmm. as I did, or take a little risk to elevate the level. So that's how you got there, by somebody taking a risk and the other person responding. Interesting, so interesting. you can't hang around waiting. It's like in the sales field, that's called aggressively waiting for the phone to ring. <laughs> doesn't work any better there. Well, let's let's talk about that because I, I thought that was interesting when you talked about the trustor trustee and you said yes. the trustor has to what, – what's the first thing they have to do to initiate um, – they have to take a risk of some they have form. To take ri- yeah, so ex- explain what that means or what that is. What does that look well, like? Uh, let's think about it in terms of the trust equation. You can take a risk on credibility, for example, by early on in an engagement. Um, uh, don't just send out a bulletproof white paper. Uh, say overtly to the client, listen, we've looked at some of your stuff. Obviously, we don't understand fully yet, but – I could be wrong, but it seems to me that maybe, given what we see here, you have an issue in this area. And it's it's got to be potentially wrong. It's got to be sensible, smart, and potentially wrong. And if you do that right, there's only two answers. The first one is, yeah, you're darn right. That is, you nailed it. If you have anything on that subject, we need to hear it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good result. The other one's actually even better. That's where they say, you know, everybody thinks that's the problem, but it's actually this. In which case you say, oh, my God, the minute you said that, I realized you're absolutely right. Tell me about that. And and people will love to tell you about that, right? People like to talk about themselves. Mm-hmm. The point of all that is you take a risk by putting out something that might be wrong. And people intuitively feel, well, you know, he, he got that wrong. But A, he's a smart guy. That was not unreasonable. Mm-hmm. And B, you know, this, is, this person took a risk. I'm putting out something with me that wasn't bulletproof. I, I intuitively feel that as a gesture, like a gift. And that triggers our sense of, of reciprocity. Mm-hmm. That's how you do it on the credibility side. The easiest one is in intimacy, is to is to just find ways of of saying, uh, you know, you look a little nervous, or uh, gosh, if I were in your situation, I would imagine feeling this, or uh, any one of a hundred different ways in which you either comment on other people's feelings or you share some of your own. Um, this goes back to gut level emotional intelligence, basically. You know, noticing your own feelings and those of others, talking about your own feelings and those of others, um, and that's probably the fastest and simplest way mm. to 
initiate trust by by taking a risk. Well, I'm glad you actually explained that because when I hear the word intimacy, or when I yep. when I hear it, I think, and I think this is actually what most people think is, they think of that as just like a personal connection, and they and they feel like. I, I noticed that that's one of the things that's also come up in these discussions is that they're saying, oh, well, you know, you don't get a chance to have, you know, a talk about your family or, you know, where right. you grew up or whatever. And so I think they're sort of mistaking true intimacy, which you just talked about with, you know, personal discussion, which personal, I think, is fine and probably does create some intimacy. But it's not the same as what you're talking about, where you say to someone, wow, you look a little nervous or, hey, did that really right. bother you when I said that? That's probably much, much deeper than saying, oh, you know, how's your dog doing? Right. You're 100 percent right about that. And, and thank you for raising that. The, the distinction that I've evolved to explain what you just said is to talk about the private versus the personal. The private is all your dog's name, memorizing your clients, kids' birthdays, right, do you know right. the game together or not. I have nothing to say about all that. That may or may not be appropriate for you, depending on you, the other person, the regulations governing the industry, who knows. But the personal, in the way that I'm using it, is gets to the human part of the person that you're dealing with. And there's mm-hmm. every bit as much emotion in the workplace as there is you know, outside of it. There's comings right. and goings, hirings and firings and promotions and fear and, and all kinds right, of stuff. Right. Being able to tap into the human part of the person that you're dealing with, right. that's key. That's where the intimacy shows up. Right, right. Well, and when you when you explain that concept, I can really see how that can really be done just as well remotely as as it can in person because you can very easily just ask that person, you know, that's hey, right. are, you, are you, are you, you know, that seemed like that really upset you or are you worried about this or you sound really this or whatever, right? I mean, right. that does not require you to, you know, necessarily chat in the hallway by the water cooler, so to speak. That's right. And, you know, the things that I mentioned, like be on camera versus not, it helps. But you're mm-hmm. right. The key is just having the courage to go there. One of the big myths about trust is that people say trust takes time. No, it really doesn't. It yeah, takes, interesting. It takes them to have the courage to you know, interact at a moment when it's called for mm-hmm. as opposed to just glossing over it and letting it go. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a certain courage involved in saying um, I'm sensing hesitation here. You know, yeah, We're all right. afraid they're going to say, what, you idiot? You know, I'm not hesitant. <laughs> yeah, right. And, but that's how it starts, you know, by us taking a little bit of a risk, usually on the emotional side, as I said. And there's this natural inclination. Um, um, what's his name? Robert Cialdini calls it reciprocity. Yeah, right. Uh, and he's dead right. You know, if you, in the old days, pre-COVID-19, you reach out your hand to shake hands with someone, 99% likely they're going to reach back and shake your hand. That's reciprocity at a fundamental social level. And it's exactly what drives the trust thing as well. So on one hand, this seems all, I mean, when you when you boil it down, and maybe this is why you're so good at what you do, um, you make it seem like it's actually pretty simple. But I assume it's not because obviously <laughs> a lot of leaders and a lot of people don't feel like their work colleagues or their boss or the people that work for them are, that they can trust them. I mean, that obviously right. is not the case. What, what do you think the biggest barrier is that? Is it just the knowledge or you think it's more than that? I think it's more than that. It is simple. It's just not easy if we can use those that framework. Um, uh, you're right. Simple. This is not rocket science. This yeah, is right. We learned some of this stuff in kindergarten. We've we've forgotten it. Yeah, so, right. Yeah, it's not easy. I, I think the biggest reason is is uh, is fear. I mean, at some, I'm not a psychologist, but I would say fear is the root negative human emotion. If you scratch all the others, anger, resentment, you know, you'll find fear somewhere down below. 
And it's maybe you call it fear of intimacy or maybe you call it uh, like the self-orientation thing. We're all wrapped up in ourselves. Um, but that's, that's kind of it, what it is at root. And I think a lot of people, again, I deal mostly, mostly with professional services people. And we've all been taught since you know undergraduate and through business school or law school or whatever mm. uh, this society in the last 200 years the last 40 years whatever has made has worshiped at the idol of rationality and uh, management science is full of uh, you know you come up with four step skills acquisition models mm. and you develop metrics to track it along the way and you lose sight of this this fundamental stuff they they just don't teach it in business school. They perhaps they should, mm-hmm. uh, but we can all we can all kind of relate to it. Mm-hmm. It takes courage. Courage is what is the antidote to fear. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ability to reach out and I and I think remind ourselves. I mean, this is what works for me. If I find that I'm fearful of something, I force myself to step back and ask two questions. Number one, how likely is that bad outcome to actually happen? Mm-hmm. We always estimate how likely it is. Yeah. And number two, if it did happen, how bad is it? We also tend to overestimate badness. So the yes. behavior economists will tell you we, we overemphasize near-term negative. We underemphasize long-term positive. And when faced with a short-term negative, our default reaction is to do nothing. Because if we did something, it might go wrong. Well, unfortunately, if you extend a series of doing nothings, you end up with the other kind of error, which is a failure to do the right thing. So we just have to get better at you know, taking these little, little interpersonal risks and leaders especially have to do that. So let's talk a little bit about, um, oh, I really like everything you're saying and it's, it's, um, my mind okay. is racing with all different kinds of questions. And stuff. But let's talk a little bit about the quotient or the uh, denominator, which undercuts yes. the, the trust factor because that self-orientation, the second component you talked about, which is sort of the, the self-obsession and only thinking yes. about yourself. And Now that, qu- that denominator <laughs> My observation is over time, and I don't know if this is because of social media or what, but that denominator seems to be getting – my perception is that it's bigger and bigger than ever, and it's growing. Yes. And that may be undercutting trust because it just seems yeah. like everybody is just completely obsessed with themselves now. That that, Anyways, tell me your thoughts on I, this. I couldn't agree more. I, I see the same thing. It drives me nuts, and, and I blame tech for a lot of this, and I yeah, blame yeah, yeah. a lot of this. If the, if the marginal cost of throwing another email – out there is zero, then guess what? There's a lot of idiots out there who will say, oh, email marketing, that sounds great. Uh, and they get, you can, you can get very good targeted information, for example, about your potential clients. You can really, just on LinkedIn, you can really hone in on, let's say, 100 people who would be perfect for whatever your product or service is. Mm-hmm. That's fine. The problem is they then send out the equivalent of a billboard, you know, a one-size-fits-all product thing. Well, that I mean, there, there's a reason you get .005 response on that because it, it feels immediately that's nothing to do with me. It's all to do with the person sending it out, high self-orientation in this language. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of that. I think it erodes um, trust. Uh, there was a great thing just the other day that put together 50 different corporate advertisements about what we're doing you know, during the, uh, during the pandemic. They all sound exactly the same. The same catchphrases, literally the same piano music, slow, dirge-like, yet somehow optimistic. It just screams self-orientation. 
that's the bad news. It, it, you know, we, we're undergoing an, an, an epidemic of high self-orientation. The good news is if you counter that, if you do the opposite, you know, you really stand out. And it isn't even that hard. Um, last time I published a book, um, I've done three. The last one was about seven years ago. I hired a different guy to handle promotion. He was the guy that used to work with Tom Peters. And he had a brilliant idea. He basically said the best way to promote in this day and age is you start a year ahead of time. You pick 100 people that you respect and you would love to have you know, promote your book. And for the next year, you follow everything they write their blog posts, their articles, you comment online, you comment on them in Twitter, you reshare, you engage in conversations. Uh, and when time comes for your book to come out, you just say, hey, by the way, I got a book coming out, would you mind? And of course they're going to say, no, I'd be delighted to do, right? Because you have focused on them. Uh, there's another social media guru years ago had a great line. He said, you should tweet 10 tweets about other people to everyone about yourself. Same thing. Focus on other people, and you know the predictable response. It's, it's predictable. If you focus on other people, they are going to reciprocate and focus on you. Now, why the marketers, the digital marketers of the world, haven't figured that out? I don't know. It's an epidemic of self-orientation. It's not what's taught in uh, return on investment in B schools. You know, pick your cause, but it, I agree with you. It's blatant. Did it work? Did it work for you on your last book? Yes, yes, it did. Yes, it did. It worked very well. Yeah. Let me ask you a little bit, um, get a little historical perspective. Obviously, that trusted advisor, yeah, that was a great book, and it was written probably what was it in the late eighties or? It was written, no, not that old. It was written nineteen years ago. The reason okay. I know that is because um, we approached Simon Schuster and said, "Hey, we think it sold pretty well. Would you guys be interested in putting out a twentieth anniversary edition?" And they said yes. So just four days ago, I handed over to the publisher oh. the final revised edit of the trusted advisor. It'll come out. I think February next year. Hmm. So, so yeah. in, in, do you think it's held up pretty well? I mean, what, what yeah. do you think? <clears throat> it is. Uh, we, we had to add one new huge chapter on digital because uh, this is literally before um, uh, Facebook was even born at Harvard. Right, 20, right. Um, and and uh, so that, that obviously bears a lot of mention. We also had to update a lot of examples. Like these days, people don't remember who Lieutenant Columbo was, for example. Uh, but fundamentally, uh, it's really sound. It is basically here are the dynamics of trust between people. Here's how they apply in a business context. Here's how you create trust. Here's the trust equation. Here's how you're trustworthy. And it's absolutely held up, and um, uh, which is really very affirming. Yeah, it really is. Um, so are you finding now with, with this remote thing that people are struggling more to establish their trust and you're getting you know just inundated with – <laughs> more inquiries about it. I mean, I would think that now people are really reaching out to you more, ever more than ever more than before. Well, it's funny. This is why I said I was skeptical about your last point on your intro. There, you said uh, it's going to become more and more important. Da da da. We need, and people are going to flock to leaders like that. And I said, eh, I'm not so sure about that. It, <laughs> same thing here. I think there's no question that people um, need it more, and uh, and yet. There's this interesting phenomenon. The people that need something the worst are often the ones who refuse to to go after it. Mm -hmm. Pick your company. Pick a low trust company. You know, anyone you you want. In the last ten years, Wells Fargo has been you know had a bad time, for example. You would think <clears throat> that companies with low trust scores would be the ones who would reach out to people like me or lots of other people uh, to to get better at trusting. Nope, nope, they don't. 
They will go for uh, corporate uh, imaging. They'll go for reputation management. They'll go for PR. Um, and I just think maybe that's that's a little bit of human nature. There are somewhat more people who I think are recognizing this and saying, oh, my gosh, we, we need to do something. But it's not by any means an avalanche, a, a landslide, anything. Mm-hmm. Well, you told me earlier when we talked that uh, you are going to be actually retiring soon. Uh, who's yep. going to take over this wonderful <laughs> message and this practice that you and David Maester have built up? Yeah, well, it's uh, uh, there's a woman that's been working with me. She had started out as a client, actually, about 12 or 15 years ago. Um, came back to work with us several years ago, and uh, I asked her about a year ago. I said, "Would you remotely, by any chance, be interested in taking this over?" Mm-hmm. And uh, she said, "Absolutely." So we've been. Uh, her name is Noel Mikalenko. Uh, she's going to be taking the reins around June 30. Uh, I'm not going to drop off the face of the earth, but um, uh, she's already doing much of this and uh, uh, totally gets the basic concepts. And and if I step way back, this is a classic founder company thing. You know, there comes a point when the founder needs to get the heck out of the way because the next step of evolution has to happen, has to be a different person. And that's very much the case here. Mm. So she's got some great ideas about how to move into the virtual world, for example, Mm. uh, already thinking well beyond what I had. So. Yeah, that's exciting. Right, and what about you? Are you going to write any? Are you still going to write any books or give any lectures or do anything like that? Uh, I'm done with the books. Uh, <laughs> it's a time-consuming exercise. I don't see that happening again. Yes, big keynote lectures, events. Uh, I'm going to be kind of selective about it, and I'll probably write the occasional article or blog post. I've been doing a podcast myself, which maybe mm. I'll. Keep but uh, no more books, and um, I'm going I'm to go offline pretty much. Well, Charles, it's been great talking to you. I really appreciate you taking the time. I'm glad we got a chance to finally do this. I would love to invite you back again. Not sure what you'll be doing, but maybe you can come back and tell me what you're up to. I would love that, Richard. Thank you so much for having me back. This is Richard Chu and Charles Green.